thank you, David. Thank you guys for tuning in. Now, we've spent the last month going through the New Testament book of Acts, where we've been looking at the various scenes from when the church first began. Part of the reason being, when the whole world seems like it's been tossed into the air, it becomes important for us to go back to those foundational questions, fundamentals. What is the church? Well, Acts points it out that it's not first an organization or a building, it's a movement of Christ followers. What unites us with one another? Well, it's not a common ethnicity. It's not because we all have the same voting preferences or that we all like Aerosmith over Bon Jovi, right? It is the Spirit of God uniting us. Why does the church exist? The beginning of Acts, to be witnesses of Jesus in the world. And when we come to his word, when we come to the book of Acts with an open heart, it refocuses and reminds us of the latent earth-shaking potential that the church has as those filled with the Spirit of God. I hope you've been reading with us as we've been going through this series. As Leanne said earlier in the kids' section, we're talking about the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 today. Next week we'll be looking at chapter 6. So feel free this week to go ahead and read ahead uh, to prepare your own hearts and minds for what we're going to say next week. But as we dive into chapter 5, Shelby and I got married almost 11 years ago on a picture-perfect day in East Tennessee. Afterward, we whisked off to our honeymoon at the all-inclusive resort, at an all-inclusive resort in the Dominican Republic, where... Of course, food, drink, everything was paid for ahead of time. It's like we, we'd gone from the grand ball of the wedding, and now we were living as a king and queen for a week. After all that was over, Shelby with her tan, me with my extra red skin and fresh freckles, I carried her across the threshold of our quaint little apartment in humble Cookville, Tennessee, where we were beginning our lives together. What was hers was mine. What was mine was hers. I was beginning work for a window washing company and working, teaching guitar lessons on the side for about a dozen students. Shelby was starting grad school and work as a professor's assistant. The cash wasn't flowing, but we knew that marriage would just be bliss. But something happened between the transition from the all-inclusive resort to the world of bills and budgets. And we started realizing that our spending habits were a little bit different. And so, of course, our conversation went like this one day. Honey, sweetie, snookums, I'm noticing that uh, you've been to the same coffee shop several times this week, and it's starting to get a little bit pricey. And her response was, oh, oh, oh my love, I, you know what? I just lost count. I'll try to make coffee from home this week. <laughs> okay, no, it wasn't like that abs- at all. At all. First, I've never actually called her snookums in my life. But it was more something like this. Wh- what are all these receipts? Where are these co- How many times have you been there this week? And of course, because my tone was so gentle and kind, she just shut down. Conversation done. So much for the world of fairy tales, thus we have entered the real world. You know, in the honeymoon, 
to say what's mine is yours and yours is mine, it sounds so romantic. But when you get into the real world, it gets a little more complicated than that. Now, since our first uh, married fight, now we've had to work hard at learning how to, instead of avoiding conflict, listen and, 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 and engage our, each other's hearts. We're a work in progress. But what that whole scene showed me right from the very beginning is that while everything around us may seem pi- picture perfect, there still is an opposition to our relationship that doesn't come from the outside, but that comes from the inside. There are certain desires selfishness that will come out of us that also pose a threat to our relationship even if all the circumstances were perfect. Last week we talked about how this early church faced its first opposition but its opposition was in the form of high priests throwing Peter and John into prison. It was opposition from the outside. But this week we're going to get a picture of the first opposition of this movement called the Church of Jesus from within. And it's even deadly. So turn with me, Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. And we're going to read to Acts chapter 5, verse 11. Acts 4, verse 32. Follow with me. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the disciples called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it This Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men carried, came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. We pray after me? God, open my heart. 
open my mind. Speak to me. And may I follow. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the kind of story that when you read it, makes you sit right up. If the Ananias and Sapphira story were an emoji, I think this one would be what it was. So far, the author of Acts, named Luke, has been writing about amazing things that God was doing. And and it's clear that, that it was wonderful. However, we realize now that the highlight reel of this early church was not photoshopped. Because this isn't exactly the kind of story that you want to brag about. It's more important for Luke that he is accurate and true than he is trying to fabricate some legendary picture of the early church. Now, we're going to get to the Ananias and Sapphira story in just a moment. But let's get a little context first, because it's tough to understand why everything happened that it did to them if we haven't understood what the church was like before that. So so what was the church like at the end of chapter 4? And for us, as the church of Jesus today, what can we gain? What understanding can we gain as far as God's hope and his vision for us as his people? See, when Jesus is our common bond, that makes us family. And family members open their hearts to one another. We're looking here at the end of chapter 4. And I recognize that All of us come from different types of families. Some show love well. Some of them are the definition, textbook case, of dysfunctional. Families, you may describe your family as comforting or absolutely frustrating or anything and everything in between. So when, when I mention family here, what I'm getting at is the best sense of the word. And when we think about family in this sense, we're thinking about those who may or may not be blood related, but are loyal to each other. They take it as their responsibility to lift each other up when we're down. They don't pretend or put on a face with each other because they know they have a sense of belonging. The church at the end of chapter 4 sounded a lot like that. And while we don't read the word family in this passage, we still get a picture of what family would be like when it says that they shared everything they had. To the point where there was no one in need among them. Meaning if somebody had a need, they didn't feel ashamed to let the rest of the people know about it. And when their need was known, the community rallied around them. Doesn't that sound exactly like the way that families should treat each other? That if your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter was in a bind, wouldn't you come around them? And that's exactly the picture we see of this early church. But the bond of this family, it runs even deeper than a common biology or blood. For it says that they were of one heart and one mind. See, of one heart and one mind, it speaks of the emotions, the will. It goes at the core of who they are. That their, their unity it makes clear, was not an external unity in that they, they all, in some creepy way, wore all the same clothes or spoke the same language or rooted for the same team, right? Like they, 
their unity was internal. It went to the core of who they were. And even more specifically, their unity as the people of God was in the fact that it was the spirit of the risen Jesus who was powerfully at work in and through them. A.W. Tozer, uh, who's a well-known Christian author, described it this way. He says, if you took a tuning fork, which is a small tool you use to tune pianos, and, and you use that same tuning fork to tune a hundred pianos, all those pianos would in turn be in tune with one another because they were united by the same tuning fork. And this community were all in tune, filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore unified with one another. And when that is the case, we understand that this was the whole reason why they were able to maintain open hearts to each other. Because they knew that the only reason why any of them belonged to the family of God in the first place was not because they had earned a right on their own to be a part of this. But we know that in order to become, to belong to Christ... It begins with us being willing to accept the truth about ourselves. That we are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. Compared to the, the beauty of God's love and the glory of his holiness, we fall so far short. No one can stand up. Not even Peter could brag about his earning his way into the family of God. But despite the truth about us, the truth about God is that in his love, knowing the truth about us, he came to our spiritually dead world and he gave his own life in order to give us new life. He gave us what we did not deserve. And that's grace. That's exactly what grace is. God met us in the midst of the truth about us with his redeeming grace. And that gospel reality was their common bond as this family. And now every member of that community could say along with John and 1 John, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And if that's what they were, then we realize that each member, why, why would they need to put on airs? Why would they need to try to impress each other? Why would they need to guard themselves against one another? When, when, when their hearts, they came to Christ completely laid bare and completely receiving. And so for this community, there was no need to spill all this energy on trying to be something, to impress each other, to guard themselves against each other. Because the love of God was freely moving through them. Man, what a beautiful picture of the church. But that's not just true for their church in Jerusalem. That's exactly God's vision for us as the church universal. What's true for them... God wants to see as a reality among us as well. And that Paul's talking to the church in Rome 
describes in his own way. He tells him, he says, Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly family affection. After all, the bond that we share as followers of Jesus, it doesn't stop at biology or blood. It's not skin deep. It goes to the core of our very hearts and souls. And the bond we have for, with one another is not just now and here. It's for all eternity. So, we better get used to each other. <laughs> but that makes this family that we're a part of greater, deeper than anything else. And when we get what it means to be a part of this family, we can see why they so willingly and open, sacrificially opened their hearts and their lives to each other. It describes one guy named Joseph, or later named Barnabas, whom you'll hear a lot about him in subsequent chapters in Acts. But he was, he was nicknamed Son of Encouragement, because he was the kind of guy who came at the church community with open hands, seeking to build up and seeking the best for his brothers and sisters. And it said that guys like Barnabas living in that community, that they had everything in common. Now, that's not some form of communism. That's actually a sweet communion. See, what they shared, the main difference between communism and what they had, was that what they shared was not out of compulsion, but it was voluntary. Communism says, what is yours is everybody's. It mandates no private stuff. Christianity says, what is mine is yours. It freely gives. That's a big difference. And see, when the reality of who God is and who we are in Christ sinks in deep, I'm free to love you. The world around us somewhat trains us to walk into church and everywhere else with the questions of what can I get out of this? What will make me comfortable? How are you serving me? It seems to be the drumbeat of our society. Serve me, love me, do for me. But yet the cadence of this community, filled with the Holy Spirit, transformed by grace, we're asking, what do you need? What can I give? How can I show God's love to you? And when the community at large are all asking each other these questions, there was no need among them. This is not like do-gooderism, that's a word. This is the Spirit of God, the natural outflow of the Spirit of God moving in and through His people. And you know what was amazing? is As I was reading this passage this week, many of your own faces started coming to mind as people who exemplify this so well. I, I don't want to embarrass anybody or call anybody out by names, but, but, but I, can, I can think of those of you who, who you've seen the kids with poor home lives and, and, and you've wrapped your arms around them. 
For those of you who, who are taking care of the sick on a regular basis, who are calling the lonely, who are mentoring across generations, like, like so many of you could probably deserve a name like Barnabas or whatever the female equivalent of that is. Barnaba? I don't know. But point is <laughs> that this is a picture of what I am seeing in our church. And the reason why that's so encouraging to me is because what makes a great church is not how well we can put on an online service. What makes a church great is the way that they have honest, open hearts serving and loving one another. That can only be a result of the Spirit of God moving in and through us. And I, I love this church for the ways that I see that working. That's what a family of grace does. But as we see in the story, when God is on the move and working in the midst of a community... His adversary, Satan, is also working to disrupt it. And instead of putting pressure on the church from the outside this time, he, he decides he's going to try to slip in his work from the inside. You know, a whole army can come against a nation. But a deceitful spy can sometimes cause more damage than anything else. The threat from inside often causes the greatest damage and the most pain. Think back to the beginning of the Bible. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. That picture perfect, beautiful place. It was from the inside, the deception that ultimately warped. The end of Acts chapter 4, four almost sounds like an Eden-type experience. Exactly the kind of community that we would love to be a part of. And then all of a sudden, the husband-wife duo, Ananias and Sapphira, come on the scene. Now, to, so you're not confused, we'll meet a couple other Ananiases in the book of Acts. It's apparently a common name, so don't get confused by that. But it's safe to say that this couple had been a part of the church... They saw several wealthy members of the church selling their land and giving the proceeds to the poor. And so they decided that they were going to do it too. But instead of giving all the money, they were just going to give part of the proceeds of their sale to the church. Now, if what they could afford as a couple and what they felt led to do was to sell their land and just give part of the proceeds, great. It was their land. They could do what they wanted to with it. Again, this was voluntary. They could have easily gone to Peter if they felt the pressure in the community. They could have gone to Peter and said, hey, Peter, we can give part right now, but we can't give all of it. Great. Praise God. But the sin was not in the percentage they gave, but they tried to deceive others into thinking that they were giving all the money. They wanted to appear sacrificially generous without actually paying the sacrifice. This is the definition of hypocrisy. To try to appear one way when the reality of who we are is completely different. That is their sin. Why do they do it? 
It's tough to know. Maybe they felt the social pressure to be generous. Maybe they liked applause. Maybe they wanted to try to get a higher position in the church. Maybe they wanted a cool nickname like Barnabas. I, I don't know. But what is clear is that their premeditated religious sham was certainly not because of an open heart. As John Stott put it in his commentary on Acts, he said, their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Now, before I move on, I have to admit, this passage hit me hard this week. And made me start to wonder, what right do I have to even judge these two? How often have I tried to appear one way to other people, but live another? I've been honest with you guys before, but every time I get up to preach, I have to wrestle against that temptation to preach in order to impress you instead of allowing this to be a gift of love for you. Every time somebody asks how many people go to your church, as a pastor, there's always the temptation to exaggerate or embellish that number because everybody knows a pastor is only as successful as how many people go to the church. It's easier to come up here and to tell you how to follow Jesus than to actually follow him myself. And I realized that's not too far from the same heart of Ananias and Sapphira. And that a hypocrite wants to garner the respect of others without loving them. They want to put on a face to be one way, but in reality live another. And I know in our world of Instagram perfect pictures and media advertisements who shamelessly twist the truth in order to make a buck. You know, Pepsi says that their survey, everybody likes them better. Coke says in their survey, everybody likes them better. You know, we, we're all willing to, to, so many people willing to bend the truth, put on an image, project something that's not quite real. We're tempted to ask, like, what's the big deal if everybody's doing this? Like my, my exaggerations, my embellishments, my truth twisting, my dualism. Like, is it really hurting anyone? But I am not exaggerating when I say that God hates hypocrisy. Just in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus calls out hypocrisy numerous times times. Why? Because to partner with a lie is to partner with the deceiver Satan himself. Peter discerned the false spirit working in and through Ananias and he called it out. He said, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? To paraphrase the next part, Peter says, the property was yours to control, right? Like, like you could have done anything you wanted to. Why are you lying to us about this? But then in verse 5, he says, but you need to get it. That you're not just lying to me, Peter, or to the church community. You're lying to the God who formed and shaped and is leading this community. Your lie is not against us. It's against God 
himself. And as a result of that, in a scene that makes us all give somewhat of a double take, it said that Ananias fell down and died. Or some translations like the ESV says he breathed his last breath. He was carried out, buried. His wife Sapphira came in without knowing about her husband's fate. She was given the opportunity to tell the truth. She lies. Peter tells her she is going to die just like her husband. And upon the news that her husband had also died, she too falls down and breathes her last breath. (laughs) And when we read that story, part of it's like, what in the world just happened? Like, did Peter perform some Darth Vader move on them? Like, like how is this okay? How is this ethical? Jesus never treated anybody like that. Peter denied Jesus three times. He's still alive. What gives? But when we look at this story, it's important that we're clear about what we do know about it, but also what we don't know. What we don't know about the story is the full backstory of Ananias and Sapphira, or we definitely don't know what was going on in their hearts. We don't know what was in the plans of God or what could have been at stake in the movement of this church. In my mind, what we do know and what we can deduce is that this, in this passage it's clear that the death of Ananias and Sapphira was not caused by Peter. It was God's judgment upon them. That original phrase for died or breathed their last breath, those original words are often used in judicial settings, meaning settings of judgment. And it says that they died right after they realized they had lied to God himself. And while that story is shocking, based on what we know, we can deduce that is meant to serve as a somber warning. The deception, hypocrisy, when it makes its way into a healthy church, can easily spread like cancer, breaking down trust, causing division, heightening egos, harming our witness. We can see today and grieve the fact that for so many outside of the church and Christianity, the word Christian and hypocrite are treated as synonyms. Whether fair or not, that is the reality. The deception and hypocrisy tend to halt the mission of God in its place. But God's desire is that for his people is that we would be people of genuine love, holding fast to what is good, and to have family affection toward one another as witnesses of God's good grace. And if we're serious about being the church of Jesus, we'll be serious about a pure heart. As a result of Ananias and Sapphira's scene, it says that great fear seized the whole church. I can imagine that's, that, that, that fear that seized them is, is probably 
a little bigger version of the feeling we get when we're driving down the highway and the blue lights are flashing behind us. Or it's, or it's a similar feeling to when mama is finally tired of saying that she'll gonna, she's going to pull the car over and come back there. And when she actually does pull the car and come back there, you know mama loves you, but mom's tired of the tomfoolery. That's similar to that fear. The movement called the Church of Jesus was not an experiment. God is serious about it. He gave his own blood for it. So that when he says, let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly, sisterly affection, and outdo one another in show, showing honor. These, these are not mere platitudes. He's not just playing around. These aren't just verses that we can put up in our house as decoration so, so, so that we can feel good. No, 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 no. This is what it means to be witnesses of his grace to the world. And when we open up our hearts to one another by the grace of God, our church-wide witness becomes a gospel invitation to the world. So, my brothers and sisters, after a passage like this, what can we do other than give God an opportunity to search our hearts and our souls? Notice I said to give God an opportunity to search us. I did not say for us to nitpick ourselves and condemn ourselves. I feel like it's only appropriate after reading a passage like that to give us a moment. And as we're going to play a couple songs here in a moment. But as we reflect in these songs on what the genuine love, the pure love, the open-hearted love of Jesus looks like for us. I want to encourage us to also ask God. God, what is holding me back from genuinely loving others? God, am I more content in trying to impress people than actually love them? Do I view my life and do I view others and relationships as those who are supposed to be serving me or Am I looking to open my heart to them? Do I consistently, God, alter, warp the truth, the light of truth, in order to make myself look better? Or am I willing to face my own heart just as it is? There's a variety of ways to ask that question. But you'll know it's God speaking to you. Because like a sincere father, his words may be hard to hear at first, but they're going to be saturated in love for the sake of building us up and making us into the people that he has always designed us to be. And if you look at the great movements of God throughout history, when the church really made a splash in their communities and people were transformed and people were coming to know Jesus, it always began when the church, the people of God, were willing to be honest about their own, the compromises of their own internal conscience and instead wholeheartedly seek after God. 
So when God begins to point out things going on in our own hearts and lives, instead of hiding from it, just confess it to him. Receive his grace. And ask his Holy Spirit to fill you with the ability to love well. When we open our hearts to one another by the grace of God, our church-wide witness becomes a gospel invitation to the world. There is a movement of God going on in the world right now. I just, given everything that's going on in the world, I know God is turning all these things out for good. And he's serious about his rescue mission. So let's open up our hearts to him. Lord God, this is hard. This is a hard passage to hear and to see. In many ways, reading through Acts and all these amazing stories, by the time we get to chapter 5, it feels like we hit this wall. Like, oh man. And it confronts our own hearts. But Father, I pray that we will not push your light away from shining into the dark places of our hearts. But instead, that we'll just open our hands and say, God, come do what you want to in me. We know that At times you point out hard things in us. But it's not to hurt us. It's to heal us. It's to lead us. And so God, will you speak to us, your people, as we worship and as we sing. I pray that you would move upon each individual heart. And that we would confess, lay it down. That we might be your pure-hearted people. And that in our unity as your people, the world might see Jesus through us. In Jesus' name.